Uh, we have started going through First Timothy, and we're going to work through the all three of the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, plus Titus, in the next few weeks. Uh, we've come as far as chapter three in First Timothy, so that's where we're going to pick up today. And Paul is just going to outline the qualifications for overseers and deacons in the church. So we'll, we'll be able to look at that, and then we'll look at some of the ways that Paul views the church. So this will be a, a good study for us this morning. As we start in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Powerful words from Paul to open us up this morning. Um, this office of a bishop, the position of a bishop, the, in the Greek, that word that's translated bishop is episcope. Um, and that is speaking of what could be translated as a bishop, but not the kind of bishop that we think of with the tall pointy hat, the, the nice jewels on him. Uh, that's not exactly what we're talking about here. It's more talking about a pastor or an elder in the church. Okay, so that is the idea that I want you to conjure up when we say bishop in the text here. Um, it is literally an overseer of the church. Okay, and uh, Paul starts off by saying, this is a faithful saying. And that can just mean, hey, this is trustworthy. Like, you can bet on this. This is a trustworthy saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. That's awesome if you want to oversee the church. That is a good thing that you are desiring. Um, verse 2, he says, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, and he goes on. But he starts that verse 2 with this qualification. He says, a bishop then, if you desire this work, then you must be these things. Um, and he does not present it as a suggestion. He presents it as an ultimatum. He says, a bishop then must be blah, 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 blah. And we're going to go into each one of those blahs. He must be blameless. Okay. So if you want to be a pastor, an elder, you need to be blameless. Uh, the idea that I get when I think of this word blameless is a commercial for a nonstick pan. Okay, You see them burn an egg on it or melt this block of cheese on it, and then it just slides off, right? Whether that works like that in real life, you know, we're not concerned about that right now. But that is the idea. These accusations, the eggs that you throw at this guy, they don't stick. They slide right off. Um, and that is blameless. And it literally means that cannot be laid hold of. So you're, you're grasping at this guy, trying to accuse him, and he's just slipping through your fingers. 
It just doesn't stick. He's blameless, the husband of one wife. So even back in the Old Testament, uh, this was a sort of qualification, something that God looked for in a king for Israel. He said that does not multiply wives to himself. So we have this same idea of being married to one spouse. Um, You can find that in a little bit more detail in Deuteronomy chapter 17. But he says, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Uh, He he adds that little bit in there um, to tell you the effect of multiplying wives to yourself. Uh, Now, in our culture in America today, you know, polygamy is frowned upon uh, in very nice terms. Um, there are certain pockets of America where it is still accepted. Uh, but for the most part in our culture, we don't necessarily worry about polygamous relationships pervading the church. God never puts his seal of approval on polygamy. Um, he created man and then he created woman and he wed them together. He created that first marriage, Um, and marriage was the institution, the only institution that I'm aware of, that came before the fall of man. So to say that the Bible says it's okay to be in a polygamous relationship, that's not the case. Um, In fact, every time it speaks of polygamy in the Bible, it is done so in a negative light. There's always a negative outcome to polygamous relationships that we see in the Bible. Um, Also, it's notable that these polygamous relationships are described. They're not prescribed. Okay, we have prescriptive scripture and we have descriptive scripture. Uh, The prescriptive is telling you, hey, this is what you should do. A descriptive scripture, that's a tongue twister, says this is what they did, right? So we see uh, polygamy described, but not prescribed. And I hope that makes enough sense. Um, Now, there is also some debate surrounding this verse and this little section of the verse talking about a husband of one wife. Some people think that it's talking uh, specifically about divorce. Um, And I think there's a good case to be made for it talking about polygamy or divorce. Um, And it could be that Paul was actually talking about all of the above. He was just saying, don't have more than one wife and don't get divorced. Husband of one wife. It really covers it all. So in the case of divorce, though, I do believe that in some cases, and I would take this on a case by case basis. Uh, Some divorces may disqualify someone from ministry. Um, If I go out and I cheat on my wife and we get divorced because of that, then that's on me and that would remove me from any kind of leadership in the church. If, and I'm not saying it would happen, but if my wife went out and cheated on me and we got divorced because of that, Um, I don't think that that necessarily would be cause to remove me from office. So there's some uh, discretion in that, uh, but certainly it it could be cause for disqualification. And it's interesting if you look at 
uh, some of the times that divorce is talked about in scripture. You have some in the New Testament and then, or Old Testament, I'm sorry. And then you have Paul talking about it in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, talking about a believer being married to an unbeliever. If the unbeliever will stay with the believer in marriage, then they should stay. Just leave it as it is. It's better to live peaceably, he says. Um, but if there is quarreling and you know disagreements about that constantly, and the unbeliever wants to be out of that relationship, then it's better to live peaceably and let them do their thing. Um, but he says, if the unbeliever will stay with the believer, the believer should allow that. And he says, because you don't know whether you will uh, lead your wife or your unbelieving husband to Christ through that relationship. Uh, and we've looked at some, some times when the writers of the New Testament would give a reason or rather a way that the wife should respond to her husband who may be an unbeliever. Um, it, it says very plainly that the wife should live well, that by her conduct, she may win over her unbelieving husband. And that is the way that it should be done. So there, there are some passages that can help guide our judgment when we're dealing with uh, church leaders and divorce. And I think that the scripture is clear enough on that, that we can take it case by case. Um, Paul also writes that the bishop should be temperate. Okay, and there's going to be a lot of adjectives or qualifications that Paul is going to give us uh, that kind of include this idea of temperance. The next one being sober-minded. And so this idea of temperance is wineless. And it's not wine-less. It's just wineless. So yeah, we don't want you to wine either. But um, not being given over to wine. You don't want to, really the heart of it, you don't want to stumble your brother. Um, if you're struggling with some kind of addiction, and we'll say alcohol because that's what we have here. If you're struggling, trying to overcome this addiction, you come over to my house to talk about it, and I'm slobbering over my words and can't speak to you, that's not going to be a good witness to you. Um, and that is not what you want in a church leader. Um, I know that you don't because I don't want that in a church leader. Um, and there's other things that we go through here. And um, just myself, I'm thinking, man, yeah, I wouldn't want this guy leading my church, uh, whether, whether or not I'm in leadership or not. Uh, but this temperate can also mean vigilant. He's, he's sharp. He's keeping his eyes open. Um, he is vigilant. He's ready. And um, then sober-minded comes next. Sober-minded means of a sound mind. Um, and it can refer to actual physical soberness. You're abstaining from drinking. It can also mean a more general sort of sober-mindedness, uh, just not um, easily excitable, not distracted. Oh, squirrel. Um, just 
you want someone who is going to be calm and collected um, in the face of challenges in the church. So this, this idea of sober-minded kind of made me and Summer laugh this morning because uh, I was asking her some questions, seeing what she would say about me. Um, and I, I asked her, and she said yes to this. I asked her, babe, do you think that I am the most serious person you've ever met? She said, yeah, I think so. Do you think I'm the goofiest and stupidest person you've ever met? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so this is not saying that you have to be super serious, uh, super even all the time. There are times when, you know, you can let loose a little bit. Um, and, yes, I am pretty weird. Uh, but I think I know well when to turn that off and turn on the seriousness. Um, and that is going to be the key here, uh, just knowing when to be what. Uh, so if we're having a very serious conversation about whatever, and I pop off with some smart aleck remark, she's probably not going to appreciate that very much. Uh, so just knowing when to turn it off, uh, sober-mindedness. He says, of good behavior. Of good behavior is kind of self-explanatory. Um, you don't want someone leading you that is constantly getting into trouble. Um, and you really don't want me to make the news because I was found Sunday morning, passed out in a ditch from going to the bar Saturday night. It's just not what you want. You want someone who is of good behavior. It's not constantly getting into trouble. Um, and I know that that's not how you want to be represented as a church. And I know that that is not how Christ wants to be represented. Uh, because whether we like it or not, the leaders of a church are representing Christ to the congregation and to the outside world. Um, and when a leader is not living right, uh, that does not represent the church or our Savior well. So we want them to be of good behavior. He says he wants them to be hospitable. Now, this literally means given to hospitality. Uh, you want to be hospitable to guests, to outsiders, but more generally, it just means you have to like people. You don't want to be begrudging against everyone you meet, like Scrooge. Like You don't want to come out of your little hermit hole and talk to people because that makes you uncomfortable. You want someone who is good with people, who can talk to you, um, who doesn't look like they're being tortured every time you have to talk to them. Um, so you want someone that's hospitable, that, that likes you. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's probably something that we all could work on a little bit. Um, you can pray for me because I'll be working on that. And I, I love y'all. I love y'all. But really, we can all work on that, at least to a degree. Now, this is a fun one. He says, able to teach. In some translations, you'll see apt to teach. Uh, this is one of the qualifications, and uh, it is not the only qualification. We see entire institutions, entire education systems built on this little phrase, apt to teach. Um, and that's awesome, and we need education. 
Uh, in fact, Peter and second Peter three eighteen exhorts Christians to grow in the knowledge of the, the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so we shouldn't be growing in grace to kick out knowledge. We shouldn't be growing in knowledge only. We should be growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So apt to teach. Yes, it's very important. You want someone teaching who is good at teaching. You don't, someone, you don't want someone up here that can't, can't do it, okay? But this is the only qualification that has more to do with someone's abilities than their character, okay? And that's, that's very telling to me. It tells me what God is looking for. He's not looking for someone who has every degree in the world whose heart is not in the right place. The heart must be in the right place of a church leader or they cannot lead the flock well. The heart of the matter is what we really need to focus on because that's what God focuses on. Um, He lists all of these qualifications, one of which has to do with education or ability. Okay, so we are looking for someone whose heart is in the right place. Um, And that is a servant's heart, the mind of Christ, as it said, Um, putting others above themselves and not being puffed up with pride. So verse three, he says, not given to wine. Again, we have reference to alcohol. Um, You don't want to be given to any kind of addiction, whether it be alcohol, drugs, gambling, pornography, on and on. You don't want to be given to these things because if that causes someone to stumble, you know, that's really not what we want as a leader in the church. And this goes back to to the idea in 1 Corinthians 10 about uh, eating the meat from the, the that was sacrificed to the idols. Um, if it causes your brother to stumble, just don't do it. Um, and so it's my heart, and uh, I know a lot of people share this belief with me uh, that church leaders should abstain from drinking. So personally, I'm not going to go out and have a beer with my friends. I'm not going to do that because if someone sees me doing that, um, then it could possibly stumble them. And I'm not saying that it would. I certainly can't say that it wouldn't. But it is my heart that that is probably not where the money that the church pays me should go. Um, And that is just the long and short of it. But I am not saying that anyone in the church shouldn't have a drop of alcohol. That's that's just not what I'm saying. I don't see that taught in the Bible. um, And so I'm not going to put that on anyone else. Now, I think it is taught that drunkenness is a sin. Do not be filled with wine, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. Um, Don't take it into excess, just like anything else. Uh, There's a lot of good things in the world that are taken to excess and turned into not good things. So just be careful. I'm not going to drink. I'm also not going to tell you that you can't drink. Fair enough. Not violent. Uh, You don't want a pastor getting in a barroom brawl on Saturday nights. You don't want me 
punching somebody after church. It's just, it's just not a good look. Uh, not violent. Also, I mean, that is, that is not the loving image of Christ that he portrayed while he was among us. Uh, the, the image that he portrayed is, let the little children come to me. He was very gentle. He was non-provocative. Uh, he was not quarrelsome. Now, he spoke the truth, and sometimes the truth hurts. And the truth with love is a powerful thing and very useful. But he was not uh, violent. He was not pressing that on someone else. Not greedy for money. Now, this is one that you could spend a lot of time on. I'm not going to. We spoke about it a little bit in Second Peter, I believe. Uh, but have y'all seen the the Instagram page? It's like at Preachers and Sneakers. When you leave here, if you got an Instagram, just look it up real quick, and you'll see what I'm talking about. This page posts photos of famous preachers and televangelists with these fancy sneakers on. Okay, and they like they put the pictures together where you got a picture of this guy and the sneakers. And then you've got like a screenshot of the retailer's website where you can see how much they paid for those sneakers. And some of these are just ridiculous. I mean, just outrageous. Um, But, you know, that is probably not how we as church leaders should be portraying the church. Um, It should not be focused on this filthy lucre, this dishonest gain, as Peter calls it. Um, Paul also calls it that in Titus, which we will get to later, the same term, dishonest gain or filthy lucre. It's just not a good look, and we don't want a leader to be consumed with money. That is not where our hearts should be. And you hear people say that money is the root of evil. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That is what the Bible teaches. And there is a difference between those two. Money is a great tool to serve the Lord with. Money is a cruel master. Um, It can be used so well, and many people do it so well. They use their money to serve the Lord. Um, If you've been blessed, uh, these people will find great ministries to contribute to. And they will pass on those blessings to other people in the form of money. Um, But when money is your focus, when you have that love of money, that's when the problems arise. Uh, The Bible says it is the root of all kinds of evil. It does not say all evil. Money is the love of money even is not the root of all evil, but of all kinds of evil. Um, So we want to stay away from that as church leaders and stay focused on what really matters, not what is going to be taken away from us when we move on from here, Um, very succinctly. (laughs) So money itself is not the problem, but how we treat our money can be a problem. Um, It is the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. And we'll actually get into that a little bit more in later in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. So similar to the not violent, 
You do not want them to be quarrelsome. Uh, And these are all good things for church leaders to avoid. It says then not covetous. So you don't want somebody who's constantly wanting what others have. Uh, That's not a, uh, that's not becoming of Christ because Christ was very content to, um, to step down from his place with the father for a short while uh, so that he could be made into man. And he came to the earth. um, I believe it was Colossians that talks about how he was content to dwell with us. Um, And he, he willingly gave up um, his status. He came of no reputation. He was a carpenter's son. He would have been trained in carpentry. That doesn't sound like the son of God, as you would think of it, without the guide that we have that's scripture. You would think the son of God is coming to earth. He's coming, bam, there he is. And in all of his glory, just laid out there. There will be a time, but it was not his first coming when he came um, with power. He came with meekness. He came as a humble servant. And now we see that that same heart should be in the church leaders, in the pastors and the elders. Um, This sin of covetousness is what showed Paul the true heart of the law. He says in Romans 7, 7, uh, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. You see, up until the point when God gives the law not to covet, all of those things were very physical. You could say, no, I hadn't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. You could say that physically. and. You may be true in that. When Paul got to the law, thou shall not covet. It really brought to light the true nature of the law. It was not physical. It wasn't a physical thing that could be apprehended. It was of the heart. Because there's nothing physical about coveting someone else's goods. If I covet your house, you don't even know that I do that. Uh, There's nothing physical that has happened, but it's in me that I have transgressed. Um, And that, this sin of covetousness, is what showed Paul what the law really meant, what it really did. And he said that he wouldn't have known the law, that is, what the law actually was um, in relation to the heart, if it were not for this law, um, do not covet. Verse 4. Four, he says, one who rules his house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And he brings up a valid point there. Um, If you can't rule your house well, how will you shepherd the flock of God? Um, And, you know, this doesn't mean that the pastors or the elders' kids have to be perfect. It's not what he's saying. Um, if that were the case, we'd all be disqualified. I mean, there, there wouldn't be a leader in the church. Uh, so it's not saying that they have to be perfect, but it is saying that you have to be a good shepherd of those kids. 
you have to deal with them well. Um, and it's been said, and I think it's a, a good example, you have to sheriff them well. If I went to the sheriff at the end of the month and there had been no tickets written in Stephenville, no crimes reported, what would you think of the sheriff? You wouldn't think, oh, he's doing a great job, would you? You'd think, oh, man, he's really slacking on this. Because you know that crimes are going to be committed. You're going to know that tickets should have been written. Uh, But um, because there were no tickets written, no crimes reported, you think that he is actually slacking off, not that he has a perfect city to take care of. Okay, so it's the same idea with the kids of the pastor or the elders. We want them to sheriff their house well. If something needs to be dealt with, that they deal with it in a godly and loving way. Um, And that doesn't mean that it can't be harsh. Um, There are times, you know, Jesus came into the temple, overturned all the tables. There are times when the law needs to be laid down. Um, But sheriff them well, one who rules his own house well. In verse 6, he says, Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So he shouldn't be a novice in the faith, but he should be someone who is more mature, who has been walking with Jesus for some time. Um, And you'll see this with uh, educated people. And I'm not speaking down on educated people. I consider myself to be fairly educated. Uh, But people fresh out of seminary, you'll see them coming into a church. Uh, They're 20 years old. They're a young guy. They speak well, got A's in all of their preaching classes. Uh, They'll come in. You give them a title. They get puffed up. Um, And that's why I like what we do here. Your title is just literally what you do. Um, If I'm preaching, I'm a preacher. If I'm leading youth, I'm a youth leader. Like it just, it's very natural. Um, So there's not any of these big titles being thrown around. um, And I think that helps me personally. Um, I'm younger. Um, I've been walking with Jesus quite a while, uh, but I do guard myself um, against becoming puffed up with pride. Uh, So this is a good exhortation to all of us, but also to me. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Now, when he says the same condemnation as the devil, he is talking about pride. Um, That is what led to Satan's fall. Uh, He said, I want to be like the Most High. I will ascend above him. Um, And so it was that pride that actually led to his demise. Verse 7, moreover, He must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Uh, Very simply, he should be respected by people in his workplace, by the parents of other kids that his kids play with, run around with. Uh, He should just be respected in the community. Uh, There shouldn't be any railing accusations against him. And he should represent Christ well to the outside world, to the unbelievers. Now, moving into verse 8, 
he starts giving these qualifications for the deacons in the church. And the, the story of how these deacons came to be is pretty interesting, and it's telling. Uh, we see why they were implemented, why this little position was created, and what it was for, what their jobs were. So if you look back in Acts, in Acts 6, you can see how the position of deacon was formed. You'll see that the Greek Christians were getting upset that the Jewish widows were being favored in their daily distributions. And these Greeks, since they were upset, were coming to the apostles and, you know, kind of complaining. So the apostles gathered everybody up and they said, okay, guys, pick for me seven men of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And they could be appointed to serve tables, uh, to distribute the daily distributions, while the apostles themselves devoted themselves, and we could say elders today, elders, pastors, they devoted themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So prayer and scripture. That, again, is found in Acts 3, uh, 6. About these deacons were basically waiters. They helped with the daily distribution. They were servants. And that is the root of this word diakonos, the deacon. It's a minister or a servant. Um, and in some contexts, literally a waiter. So we see the heart that these guys should have in serving. They really should be a servant. Uh, they should have the mindset of everyone above myself, right? The mind of Christ. So verse eight, he says, and he starts with this word, likewise. That tells us that God has equally important standards for these deacons as he does for the pastors and elders. Okay, so equally important here. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, we see a lot of the same qualifications for deacons as we do for these overseers, the pastors or elders. He starts by saying that the deacons must be reverent. And that's really saying they need to be honorable. Okay, these guys need to be of good character um, as a blanket statement, not double-tongued, and today we would say two-faced, can't be given one story to one person and another to another person. Um, you want them to be true to their word, uh, just straight up. So not double-tongued, not given to much wine. Again, we've talked about that. Not greedy for money. Again, the love of money, we want to avoid that in a church leader. Verse 9, he says, holding the mystery of the faith, 
with a pure conscience. Uh, we have that same idea of a conscience. Um, and remember, I mentioned that Paul does bring up the conscience quite a few times in his pastoral epistles. We have a seared conscience, a pure conscience, and a couple other types of conscience. Um, it is a theme that we are going to continue to see. Verse 10, he says, but let these also first be tested. So you don't want someone to come in the church one week and then the next week they're serving as a deacon. Um, that's dangerous because you don't know the person. You don't want to set somebody up in leadership in your church without really vetting them. Um, and I know, and some of you can attest to this, and I don't know exactly how long it was, but I, I came to this church and I learned a lot from Justin before I ever did any sort of teaching or had any sort of say in anything. Um, I was here quite a while um, at least a few years. Um, so you do want to vet these guys and see who they really are before you give them a position of authority. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Again, the egg doesn't stick when it's thrown at them. Likewise, their wives must be reverent or honorable, uh, revering their husbands, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. So not slanderers is a similar idea as the two-faced, the double-tongued that we talked about, um, but more to do with like a gossip, gossiping type. Uh, you don't want the wives of these leaders, these deacons, to be going around spreading rumors. Uh, that is not helpful in the church. Uh, in fact, you, you really want them to diffuse rumors um, and, you know, don't mess with that at all. Uh, so their wives must be reverent, not slanderers or gossipers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, again, we see husbands of one wife, um, and I'll defer you to a few minutes ago when we talked about that, polygamy and divorce, ruling their children and their own houses well. Again, the same importance and this, many of the same qualifications are placed on deacons as they are on the elders and the pastors. Now, one thing, and you can do with this what you wish, but it does not say that the deacons should be apt to teach because that's not their job. Their job is to serve in other capacities. Okay. And that's, uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, not everybody has to teach and everybody has to be good at it. Uh, just the same as I don't have to be good at doing Sunday school because that's not my gift. Um, so many of the same things, we do not see the deacons needing to be apt to teach. Uh, just simply because they serve in other roles. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And that's a great place for us to wrap up this morning.